This week takes us to Austin, where a string of burglaries that plagued a small artist community ends in one of their own being killed. This is episode 56 of Texas 1031. Hey everyone, this is Hannah, this is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. Today I'm going to be telling you about the unsolved murder of Michael Cahill in Austin, Texas. I've been sitting on this case for a couple of years now, I don't know why I haven't talked about it sooner, I feel like I say that all the time with cases, but whatever, I am going to talk about it now. So picture it, Austin, Texas, 1979. To some, the murder of Michael Cahill is better known as the Book of Days murder. This haunting title actually derives from a very unique place, so let me explain further. The Book of Days is, or was, a photography concept created in the 1970s. All 13 editions of this weekly desk calendar feature 60 or so images, each by a different photographer, one for each week of the year. I'll post pictures of or a picture of the book on Instagram so you can get a better visual. But each year, new editors select the most appealing black and white photographs from among the hundreds submitted in competition. Over the life of the project from 1977 to 1995, 756 photos were published representing the work of 400 or so photographers. The Book of Days and the murder of Michael Cahill are connected through a number of burglaries within a small community of photographers in the 1970s, more specifically to the artists featured in the 1978 edition of the Book of Days. So Michael's story was originally told to me in passing when I casually asked my father and stepmother if they had any good true crime stories. Expecting the typical pause with the inevitable no, I was quite surprised when they told me the story of a popular Austin musician shot in the head on the street after he witnessed his prized guitar in the hands of a stranger who was walking down the road. My dad is a fantastic musician, he and my brother, but I've always really admired how naturally talented my dad is at playing guitar and the banjo. He's also a very good singer, which is probably where my brother gets it from. My dad, however, he even has one of Michael Cahill's old records and had actually played with him before Michael was killed. So when I did a simple Google search of Michael's name, a blog was one of the first websites listed. It wasn't just any old, you know, true crime blog. Rather, it was a blog titled Imaginary Magnitude by Matt Cahill. One of the posts was from April of 2006, and it linked an article from the Austin American Statesman regarding Michael Cahill, Matt's uncle. I will discuss more about Matt's blog post later, but now I will read from the American Statesman article to kind of set the scene for Michael's murder and really explain what happened. So the article was written by Denise Gamino in 2006, and I will be reading directly from it, not necessarily verbatim, but I will be reading a lot of it. Uh, It's just very concise. So don't come for me saying I just read off of an article and I didn't write any research myself like usually I do. So just grow up, you know, what? get your own podcast. How about that? Okay. 
Uh, let's begin. All the photographers contributed to the 1978 Book of Days, a desk calendar filled with the artistic black and white pictures by Austin photographers. The calendar was published most years from 1977 to 1995 and was designed to create some photographic commotion, the first call for entries flyer said. In the spring of 1979, a burglar, or several burglars, no one knows for sure, seemed to hand-pick the homes of Austin photographers. And once inside, the thief took his time. He turned on the lights, he opened cupboards, he examined kitchen blenders, and checked closets. He liked music, too. Most remarkably, the thief thumbed through record collections. Sometimes he snubbed every album but one. From one place, he lifted Randy Newman's Sail Away. From another, he chose only Elvis Costello's second album, this year's model. This thief knew the photography world, too. He looked for cameras and photo equipment and even books about photography and coffee table books of photo collections. But he was picky. He preferred high-quality classic Leica cameras to the more mainstream Nikons. Stealing the single Costello album was like leaving a calling card. On the album cover, an intense Elvis Costello is shooting a photo with a Hasselblad, a camera often used for portrait photography. The photo burglar is believed to be the same person who left Michael's apartment with the treasured guitar, police say. Similar weekend burglaries had occurred in the month before Michael's killing. Michael, who attended UT from 1969 to 72 but never graduated, was not a photographer. He was a cook at Gordo's, a billiards parlor on 6th Street. He recorded songs and made demo tapes in pursuit of a music career, but his world intersected the photography world. He had photographer friends, including Ave Bonar, who lived in the South Austin duplex apartment above him. I think that's how you pronounce her name. I could be totally wrong. Probably am. Her apartment might have been the prime target on the night of Michael Cahill's murder. <gasps> Friday the 13th. Excellent ad. Ave Bonar is perhaps best known for her black and white postcard photos of quirky people and funny moments, including many of Ann Richards campaigning for governor and having her big hair done. I'm not really sure what that means. Probably, you know... Um, boomers probably know more than anything or people that are into the political scene. That's not me. So Avi Bunar was out of town with her camera equipment the weekend of Michael's killing. But the thief forced open her back door, rummaged through her place and stacked a pile of belongings from her and Michael's apartment on Michael's front porch. Avi Bunar's Randy Newman album was cashed along with some magazines, a half a dozen of her books of photo collections, a Jimi Hendrix book, and a drinking glass full of coins that had been stuffed in a sock. The burglar, it seems, intended to come back for the items after he'd lifted the guitar, but Michael and two of his friends drove up at about 10.30 p.m. The burglar was walking away almost casually with the guitar in its case. I asked my dad and my stepmom, you know, how did he know that that was his, you know what I mean? It could just be a guy walking down the street with a guitar, but I guess the case had some um, significant stickers or something like that on it, so he was able to recognize it pretty easily. <clears throat> um, Michael yelled from the back seat of his friend's car, then he jumped from the car and ran for his guitar. It kind of rhymed. Um, so Michael had paid $565 for the Guild D4 six-string guitar at Willie's String Shop string shop that's hard to say on the drag he had saved and saved for the guitar and had only owned it for about three years before it was stolen 
The guitar serial number 132227 was imprinted on the back of the headstock. Quote, that guitar took the place of all the things he didn't have. It was his happy, his sad, his wealth, and his poverty, said Michael's older sister, Barbara Classel. Michael was a hopeless romantic, writing wistful love songs straight from his heart. His music friends believed he could have had a singer-songwriter career if he hadn't, if, excuse me, if he'd been a better self-promoter. Quote, he had a lot of heart and very smart lyrics without being clever or preachy and a voice like Texas, like a Texas James Taylor, said close friend Julie Christensen. When Michael went after the burglar, his two friends stayed in the car momentarily. The driver, Watt Casey Jr., which names like that piss me off because you think that it should be backwards, Casey Watt Jr., but whatever. Watt Casey Jr. was a photographer who coincidentally had photo uh, had a photo published in the 1978 Book of Days. Casey's fiance, Colette Schroeder, was also in the front seat. Sidebar, my dad and stepmom are still incredibly close with Colette and her current husband, Rich. I've met them several times, incredibly sweet people. Um, I actually thought about asking Colette for an interview, but I feel like this was probably pretty traumatic and she may not want to live re- or relive those moments just for the podcast's sake. So I didn't I didn't inquire regarding an interview. Um, but Michael was uh, set to be a groomsman in Watt and Colette's May wedding, by the way. But obviously that did not work out. Um, Watt is quoted saying, when shots rang out, I just drove into the dirt. I told Colette, duck down, get down. Watt got back into the Volvo, threw it into reverse, and back down the street. He told police he heard Michael yell at him, and then he heard two rapid gunshots, followed by a third shot moments later. Uh, It's raining. Sorry again if you can hear that. Uh, He saw the burglar running down the street toward Bolden Avenue, and then Watt pulled his car into Michael's driveway, where he saw his friend lay dying. Watt called the police and waited there, holding Michael until the ambulance came. At the time, on the street behind Michael's duplex, then Travis County Judge Mike Renfro heard the gunshots. He was working upstairs in his house at 907 Columbus Street. The judge is quoted saying, I remember the dog started barking like crazy. It was really loud and out of character for them to carry on. He and his wife heard someone run past um, their house and into their large backyard. But the person couldn't get over the back fence and ran back towards the street after Renfro's dogs started to crash against the chain link fence that penned them in. The judge ran outside but didn't see anyone. Police are mystified why the burglar never dropped Michael's guitar, especially after the shooting started. And so is Ray Henning of the Heart of Texas Music, who has been selling guitars in Austin for more than 30 years. A Guild guitar, which in 1979 weighed twice as much as a Martin guitar, was not worth killing for, he says. If it was a Martin, sure, he said. They might have killed over a Martin, maybe a Gibson, but not a Guild. Police never found a bullet or shell casing, or more precisely, a bullet or casing tied to Michael's murder. When they started searching the grass and the tree trunks, some lead was actually found, Then more and more and more. So much was found, it became obvious something was amiss. The supervising investigator was Doyne Bailey. (laughs) D-O-Y-N-E. Yeah. A police homicide sergeant who a year later was elected Travis County Sheriff. 
Investigator Bailey told the statesman, quote, it turned out that the house next door to Michael's had been the home of an Austin police officer who made thousands of homemade bullets for officers to use in target practice. The lead was not from the killer's gun, but from the police officer's backyard hobby. So that's an interesting twist to the story. Um, After Michael's murder, the burglar struck again, five times to be exact. Four photographers and one photo hobbyist were burglarized on Friday, April 20th, one week after the murder. Four of them had photos in the 1978 Book of Days. So are you seeing a pattern with who is being targeted? We'll talk about it. Austin Police Sergeant John Neff, head of the Homicide Cold Case Unit, said, What strikes me as odd about this case is that this murder occurred in the middle of a series of burglaries. Presumably, the murderer and the burglar are the same people. That he would continue to burglarize other places after he committed such a heinous offense as murder kind of boggles the mind. Photographer Rick Patrick was in Big Bend when the burglar broke into his house. It was clear he had a shopping list because the resemblance between the items he wanted to steal from Ave Bonar and what he stole from Patrick was beyond coincidence. So remember, he couldn't go back and get all of the stuff he had stolen from Ave and Mike's, uh, Michael's apartments. He had stacked it up and he just took off with the uh, guitar momentarily until he was kind of caught in the midst of it. So he kind of had to leave everything behind. So Rick says it was uncanny because of the specificity. The thief picked through his albums, including many stored in paper sleeves because their covers had been damaged by water. He lifted Randy Newman's Sail Away album and a Time Life series on photography, both of which had taken had been taken from Ave Bonar's apartment and stacked on Michael's porch. So that's just creepy, right? He really wanted these fucking items. Rick also lost other albums, stereo equipment, a television, a blender, two Leica cameras and four Leica lenses. The thief shunned the Nikons in the house. The stolen camera equipment was worth almost $3,000, Rick said. Quote, he only took the collector's cameras. A knowledgeable photographer would have stolen the cameras he took, but a thief would have taken everything. Interesting uh, statement there. Next on the hit list was photographer Randy Elric's cottage on West 13th Street near West Lynn Street, about a mile from Rick Patrick's house. And in an eerie replay of Michael's encounter, Randy and his wife drove up at 10.20 p.m. while the burglary was still in progress. The lights were on, and Randy saw a curly-haired white man through the bay window. He was, quote, going through my albums, he said. I slammed the car door and ran to the front door. The burglar ran out of the back, right through the same window in the kitchen that had been pried open. Randy, like Michael, chased the burglar, but he got away. The thief ran through the backyard and behind a neighbor's house before he disappeared through a thicket of bamboo. Who the fuck has bamboo? I don't know. That was weird. Um, A neighbor later told police she saw a white or Hispanic man with kinky collar length hair. He was wearing orange Playtex gloves and had a tan satchel slung over his shoulder. Later, Randy would find his cameras, camera case, and the HBO box from his television in the grass behind his house. Love it. Such a HBO box. That's like a moment in time. Um, Yet another person victimized was Berkeley Breathed. That sounds 
fake. <laughs> uh, it might honestly be a pseudonym. This guy turns out to be a famous artist later, so I don't know. Uh, Berkeley wasn't home when the burglar hit his duplex near the UT Law School that same night. So it's like this guy, if he gets interrupted, he just keeps going and he keeps attacking places. He doesn't call it a night, which is pretty ballsy, you know. Um, I, I don't, he's a desperate person, I guess. Or a person who doesn't think he's ever going to get caught, which he doesn't. So anyway, Berkeley was about to graduate from the U, uh, from UT with a degree in photography. Uh, he also had a photo in the 1978 Book of Days. He would later earn some fame in the cartoon world. Um, just as a side point, Berkeley had a beat up Nikon that the thief passed over. So in the end, nothing was actually taken from his duplex. But the duplex behind Berkeley's was also hit. One of the residents, photo hobbyist Judith Birdsong, these names are just so bizarre, came home while the burglar apparently was still in the house. This guy is like not great at like wrapping shit up fast. It's like he doesn't think he's going to ever get caught in the midst of it, even though he has every single fucking time. Um, Well, I guess not every time, but a lot of the times he's interrupted. So he's not good at timing, I guess. Um, Judith said, quote, I was working at the steak and ale restaurant and I was the bartender, which again, fucking flashback, love a good steak and ale. The architecture of those restaurants was so gross. Um, I guess it was a slow night and they let me off early. I pulled into the driveway and I walked up to the back door of the house and the back door was wide open and the light was on. I thought, well, that's a little creepy. But I walked into the apartment and saw all of my stereo equipment was stacked up next to the open door. The speakers, the amps, the turntable. I always just assumed he heard my car and that it frightened him away. Again, why why even like stack up shit that you can't? We'll go over in questions and theories. It's fine. Um, <laughs> the thief went through her closets and took a Leica camera bag, an Olympus camera, a Konica camera. I think that's how you say it. Konica. And other photo equipment. He also took the lone Elvis Costello album from a small storage cabinet. Quote, I would have had them filed alphabetically and Costello would not have been first, she said. I thought it was so weird because he could have could just as easily have picked the thing up and walked out with the whole thing. Why take one record? At midnight the same night, a burglar alarm was triggered at Marlon Taylor's commercial photography studio at 225 Congress Avenue. The thief fled. Can we guarantee it was the same guy? No, but I mean, that that's just so many, you know, attempted or successful burglaries in in succession. That's just uh, what what's the need, man? We'll again talk about it. Um, Okay, continuing on. A few days later, Ave Bonar and Randy Elric were shooting the breeze as usual in the dark room at his custom photo lab. They discussed the murder and burglaries and started putting pieces of the puzzle together. There in the dark, a flash of light crossed our brains simultaneously. All of the photographers we'd been talking about had been in the book of days, Bonar said. It was like a huge revelation because the police could never have figured that out. Then they checked the Austin telephone directory. Sure enough, the victims were listed in the phone book. A photography-oriented thief using the phone book and the book of days could compile a list of places to hit. Ave Bonar contacted the police, who were grateful for the tip, and actually formed a task force to try and solve the murder and burglaries. 
Police had a composite picture of the burglar that apparently was not released publicly. For two weekends, police staked out the homes of the 1978 Book of Days photographers who were listed in the phone book but who had not yet been burglarized. Austin American Statesman staff photographer Larry Colvord, I think that's how you say the last name, it's spelled K-O-L-V-O-O-R-D, something like that. Uh, Larry, then a UT photographer, remembers two undercover police officers with long hair (laughs) coming to his house with shotguns and ammo belts across their chests. Larry and his wife went out for the evening and the two officers sat in the dark, uh, sat in their dark house waiting for the burglar. But it was as if the thief knew he was being watched because the theft stopped. Perhaps, some think, the the thief was a photographer who heard it through the grapevine. Quote, he was one of us, Bonar said, and police never found enough evidence to make a case. Not long after this article was published, a producer for America's Most Wanted contacted Michael's sister, or Matt's aunt, for permission to spotlight this cold case on one of their episodes. One of Michael's acquaintances and fellow burglary victim, cartoonist Berkeley Breathed, was able to contribute to the America's Most Wanted episode as well. He created a drawing for the AMW producers of the scene at his apartment in Austin the night he became a burglary victim. He hoped it would help jog someone's memory and lead police in a new direction. He is quoted saying, I don't have any pictures from that period, but I do have the mental images. I thought the best way to do it was put to put a sketch down. It's how I do everything now. Give me enough time. I'll turn it into a photorealistic rendering and give it to the police. After the America's Most Wanted episode aired in 2007, the family would have to wait another 13 years for a lead to finally rise to the surface. In the most recent blog post referring to Michael's murder on Matt's website, breaking news occurred in April of 2020. This is interesting because I heard about the murder from my dad and my stepmom, like I said, around April of 2020. And so it was weird when I went to look it up, like I found out all this information and it was this cool, like current event. I don't know. You had to be there, I guess. Um, Excuse me. According to Matt's blog, after his uncle's murder was discussed on television, quote, nothing happened. I wrote about it and that generated interest. People have reached out to share their theories, sometimes the odd story about Michael. Over time, especially given the cancellation of America's Most Wanted and the erasure of its online presence, which wiped out all of the stories they covered, a crime in itself for families who only hoped for justice uh, was the information the site provided. I grew ambivalent to any suggestion that I could be hopeful my uncle's murder would find any sort of resolution. That was kind of phrased weird. Essentially, I don't know if you understood what I meant by that. A lot of that was in parentheses in on the blog. Uh, But he's saying that um, America's Most Wanted was canceled. And so you can't even go back and watch or read about any of these episodes that they they covered. Um, So he kind of just gave up essentially that, you know, anything would be resolved about his uh, uncle's murder. So maybe you understood that. And I just explained that for no reason. Whatever. On February 7th of this year, meaning in his blog, so 2020, I got on a plane to Tulum, Mexico for a vacation. When the jet landed on the tarmac tarmac of Cancun International Airport, I saw that I'd received a voicemail. 
I ignored it, assuming it was work-related or maybe just spam. It was from an area code I didn't recognize. Until I returned to my office on the 18th. It was a Tuesday. The message was from Randy Crafton, the owner of Kaleidoscope Sound, a recording studio in New Jersey. While doing an inventory of their music equipment, they looked up the serial number of one of their studio guitars. Unlikely as it may seem, even as I write this, that serial number was the same as the one my uncle died chasing in 1979. It had likely changed hands many times, but I'm sure at some point someone will investigate this. This past Friday, Good Friday, the guitar was delivered by UPS to my father in Houston just in time for the 41st anniversary of my uncle's death. My family down there is, to say the least, ecstatic, and I am still gobsmacked at how this all came to be. Let's face it, the probability is beyond calculation. I'm grateful, which feels like a tremendous understatement. Grateful to the people at the studio in New Jersey. Grateful to everyone who has shared Michael's story, including that serial number on the web. I will most likely write something more comprehensive about this because there are so many moving parts, names, places, people, and the story is much larger than what I'm able to encapsulate here. But I'll get to that when the dust has settled. And that is the story of the unsolved murder of Michael Cahill. I know that that was short and I just read off blog posts and articles and things like that, but um, it's it's a good story. I love this story. Um, so we're just going to do some questions and theories, okay? So, um, but before we do that, I did want to say that I have not seen an updated post since 2020 regarding this. So I don't think Matt has gotten around to that. If, if he does, I'll be sure to update you guys. I don't, I, if you know, he actually, it's been a couple years, so who knows? Um, so questions and theories. Number one, if Ray Henning, this guitar expert is correct and the guitar wasn't worth much, or at least not worth the theft and the murder of someone, on top of it being a bitch to haul off, then that kind of tells me that perhaps while this suspect was a camera and record snob, he wasn't necessarily a musical instrument connoisseur. Um, I'd like to know if any other burglaries resulted in any instruments being stolen. I think that this is a a one-off. I don't think anyone else had anything, or at least didn't report it, or I didn't read about it being reported. Um, you know, a flute or a fucking tuba was taken. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that's <clears throat> kind of interesting. I wonder if this guy even played, or if he was just under the assumption that this was worth some money. Maybe he could pawn it. I don't know. Um, okay, question number two. Ave Bonar makes an excellent point when she said he was one of us. I think that this is a really good possibility. If he was, you know, one of us, I'd like to know if P if the police spoke with every photographer in the 1978 Book of Days, which I'm assuming they did because they did the whole stakeout thing. But it, when, I wonder if they asked them if their home had been burglarized, you know, if they had noticed anything missing. He obviously pried through windows or broken through the doors. So he wasn't busting in willy nilly with a gun and holding you up in the house. So maybe people don't even realize that they had their shit stolen. I don't know. Um Furthermore, did any of these people within the photography, you know, group slash community suddenly show up with a lot more equipment or even large amounts of money from possibly selling or pawning the items? Did police even check pawn shops? I couldn't find anything online regarding police records. So even though I could have requested them, I doubt they would have been sent to me with any sense of urgency. No offense to them. So... I don't know. Maybe there's some information out there that I'm not privy to, 
But I, I do find it interesting. I feel like it would have been mentioned in those articles if they if the police had checked out pawn shops, etc., consignment stores, whatever. Um, but it would have been interesting to know if anyone in that book of days had or even just in any of the the additions had maybe noticed some strange behavior with someone in the community. You know, you always hear um, investigators and, and profilers say, you know, if if anyone you know hasn't shown up to work or has changed their appearance or has skipped town, um, those are signs of possible guilt when it comes to a crime. Um, and so I would I was wondering if, you know, they kind of took those tips and kind of put it into this scenario of like, is anyone in our group like looking weird these days or acting weird or has more money or more stuff? Um, I don't know. It'd be interesting. Um, third question. Did anyone know anyone that wore a tan satchel and had curly hair? I feel like that alone is a huge, you know, two huge pieces of information. I mean, it's the seventies. Tan satchel is probably a popular fucking, uh, outfit accessory, but still, um, I mean, I would even go as far as to like, does anyone have orange Playtex gloves? Who gets the orange ones? I feel like everyone wore yellow ones to like wash dishes, but maybe that's just me. Maybe he loved orange. Um, I think it's interesting that the suspect stacked the stuff he was stealing outside somewhere and carried everything off almost one by one or load by load. To me, that infers that he might be on foot or at least parked far away to not be noticed if he did have a vehicle. It also seems pretty brazen to be burglarizing an apartment with multiple units, these these duplexes, these quadplexes. Um, It's like he just didn't think anyone would come home or walk by or anything, which I think is why half of his burglaries were interrupted. Um, especially in the thick of the thefts and Michael's murder, he keeps going without hesitation. I know that that, um, officer police or, uh, John Neff, I believe it was, he said it too. It's just like, he kept going. That's, that's pretty crazy that nothing deterred him at all. Um, especially because people at this point are on the lookout and are alert to what has been occurring in the neighborhood and yet again isn't deterred. Additionally, if he is a member of this little community of artists, then wouldn't he be more frightened that someone might recognize him if he was caught? Um, This guy is, I don't know, he's he's not fearful at all. Um, So also he wore gloves, right? I guess that was pretty smart. Does that mean, and maybe I'm looking at this, you know, in hindsight, I don't know what the fingerprint database was like in 1979. I, I guess I could have looked it up, but I don't really care. I don't think it holds that much weight in this case. But maybe did he know that his fingerprints might be on record? And if he was caught, he could be easily linked. Does that mean potentially that he has a previous criminal history? You know, that's a thought. Uh, lastly, Ave Bonar was out of town with her camera equipment the weekend of Michael's killing. Did the suspect know that she was going to be gone and hoped that she had left her equipment behind? Is that why her place was targeted? Was he mad he couldn't get anything from her place? So he went to Michael's and took whatever he could find to make the night out worth it. I mean, he did take some stuff from her place, but nothing you know, super substantial. 
Is that why he was so insistent on not leaving the guitar behind since he hadn't been able to get anything of real value from Aves? Was that why he was so angry and desperate enough to kill over? Um, to kill over it. Like it's, he did have a stack of shit, but I wonder if we see how he's so consistently like, oh, well, I didn't get anything at this house or I got interrupted at this house. I'm going to go to the next one and the next one and the next one all in one or two evenings. You know, he, he has this sort of sense of that he's, you know, invincible or something and he's never going to be caught despite being interrupted. I don't know. Uh, it's just an interesting thought. I Maybe he knew her schedule. But if at the same time, if he knew her schedule and knew she was going to be out of town, wouldn't he possibly know why she was going to be out of town, which would infer that he knew she was taking her camera equipment? So what's the point of even going in in the first place? Maybe he just thought, let me go in to just go in because I know she's going to be gone and it'll give me ample amount of time to sift through stuff despite her camera equipment not being there. I don't know. Lots of questions, lots of theories. I personally think this case is somewhat solvable, even though it is incredibly cold at this point, 43 years later. I suppose that would have to be, you know, solving it would have to be done through, you know, tracing the guitar back through trades, purchases, exchanges, which I'm not sure you can really do that and ensure that any of that information is credible or accurate, especially after all this time. Um... If the suspect was such a photography buff, I would assume that they would be using this equipment, but maybe they were just hoarding it in some closet for no one to see. Maybe the theft of it was the excitement and and screwing over his friends was part of the, the thrill, you know, the rush. But if he wasn't using the equipment, then he was selling it because he was picking the expensive equipment over the less expensive So he was at least knowledgeable enough to know the difference, whether he was using it or selling it. Um, Anyway, we have seen so many ice cold cases solved in the recent years. Granted, those were due to, you know, DNA evidence for the most part, but still crazier things have happened. Um, So I do think there's hope. I'm interested in reading any follow up that Matt has on his blog Or, I mean, all these years later, the guitar was found. So maybe all these years after this year, the the suspect can be found. Who knows? So let me um, quote some things really quick. So Cahill Unfinished is a lovely album put together in 1980 by Michael Cahill's friends. Uh, who each chipped in about $100 to get it produced. Some lyrics listed in the Austin Statesman article are quoted from his song titled Caught in the Middle. Quote, Caught in the middle, I was turning to run. Little is left to describe. All of my defenses, while they did me no good, I was left holding the gun. The song ends with a plaintive last line, Oh, what a lonely goodbye. I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for listening. We will be back with more Texas true crime. And if anyone is listening, happy Halloween.